Welcome to the Weekly Palestine. Each week, the Center for Study and Preservation of Palestine brings you contextualized news and a special topic about Palestine and Palestinians from around the world. The CSPP stands firmly against the erasure of Palestinian identity and does not recognize or collaborate with the occupation state or apologist of the apartheid regime. This program centers the truth and reality of Palestinians living under the occupation and uses only Palestinian sources for current events and special topics. The CSPP is located on the unceded territories of the Clackamas and Multnomah Chinookan people in what is described as Portland, Oregon and the settler system. This evening's episode brings you news up to today, Friday, October 29th, and a special topic titled, The Myth of Greening the Desert. Last Saturday, October 23rd, an illegal settler militia under the protection of the occupation forces carried out an attack against Palestinian farmers in the Turmos Aya village of northern Ramallah. The farmers were working on the yearly olive harvest when they were subject to violent attacks that resulted in injuries to an elderly farmer and a young girl. The settlers also burnt a vehicle and damaged several olive trees. Attempts by the Palestinians to defend themselves resulted in occupation force suppression. The, force, the forces opened fire on the villagers, and a young man was shot in his back. On Sunday, October 24th, the family of Kayed Fasfus, the Palestinian detainee with the longest ongoing hunger strike, discussed the condition of the political detainee. The young father of one has been on hunger strike for over 100 days in protest of his administrative detention, which holds him without charge or trial or access to evidence. While the occupation state has made claims that it has, quote, suspended his administrative detention, the family highlighted that it is still a misuse of law and that if Kayed were not released, he would either pass away or continue to be held under the illegal and inhumane policy indefinitely without any legal consequences. The family has called for international pressure to help free their son and the five other detainees on hunger strike as it is becoming clear that the occupation state will allow these detainees to die. On Monday, October 25th, the Israeli occupation forces dismantled a school complex in the northern Jordan Valley of the occupied West Bank. Mu'taz Bisharat, the Palestinian Authority official for the area of Tubas, told reporters that the Israeli forces dismantled and confiscated structures belonging to the Al-Malih school that were also being used as a clinic. During the theft, the occupation forces installed a military checkpoint that prevented school staff, students, and parents from reaching the school complex. Just one week ago, the occupation state forces banned the Al-Malih school principal from going to the school for 10 days. For the second day in a row, on Tuesday, October 26th, occupation forces demolished graves at the El Yusufiya Cemetery in the occupied capital of Jerusalem. The important Muslim burial site is being demolished in order to make way for a biblical-era theme park that will also result in thousands of Palestinian home evictions. The El Yusufiya Cemetery has been assailed for several years for different excavation projects by the occupation state and a program of erasing Palestinian heritage in the old city to rewrite an exclusionary history. 
In 2002, the wall of the cemetery adjacent to the Asbat Gate of the old city was demolished in addition to the stairs that led down into the martyrs' graves. This very important cemetery is the final resting place of several Palestinian, Jordanian, and Iraqi martyrs who were murdered by the occupation state during the 1967 war. In 2014, in an act of grotesque vandalism, after preventing additional burials in the northern area of the cemetery, the occupation authorities removed the graves of 20 Jordanian soldiers and destroyed the Monument of the Unknown Soldier. The current demolitions are ongoing. On Wednesday, October 27th, the latest act of continued harassment against the families of the six Palestinian prisoners who escaped from the Jalbur High Security Prison last June. The homes of several family members of Yaqub al-Qadri were raided and vandalized at dawn in the Jenin village of Bir al-Basha. This month, the Palestinian Prisoner Society published a report revealing that 16 family members of the six prison escapees have been arrested after being subjected to interrogation while their homes were raided and vandalized. Also on Wednesday, the, quote, Supreme Council for Planning of the Occupation State approved plans for the construction of 3,144 additional settlement units in the occupied West Bank. This approval boldly flies in the face of international pressure to freeze settlements, including objections by the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. The new units will be distributed amongst 30 illegal settlements as well as settlement outposts. Earlier today, Friday, October 29th, at least six Palestinians were severely injured by the occupation forces during protests at the Eviatar settlement outpost on stolen Beta village land near Nablus. Weekly protests continue at the site of the illegal settlement outpost turned military compound and evangelical school that has appropriated 30% of the Beta village land since May of this year. The current occupation state minister of defense, Benny Gantz, has enabled the settlement outpost residents by a deal requesting them to leave the outpost until the area can be appropriated as state land, at which point they plan to return. The land that was confiscated is the site of generations-old olive cultivation operations that hundreds or hundreds of Beta residents rely on for their livelihood. Since the settlement outpost was established, hundreds of Palestinians have been injured and eight have been murdered by the occupation forces who protect the illegal settlement and used unchecked force against the Palestinian villagers. I end this week's current events section with the Samidun Prisoner Solidarity Network update. Currently, there are 4,600 Palestinian prisoners in occupation state jails. 500 are held under administrative detention, which imprisons Palestinians without charge or trial or access to evidence and for indefinite amounts of time. 200 are child prisoners. There are currently six Palestinian prisoners on hunger strike in protest of the inhumane and illegal administrative detention policy. The longest strike is by Kayed Fasfus, who as of today has been on strike for 108 days. 44 Palestinian detainees have started hunger strikes since the beginning of 2021. 
The CSPP will always stand in solidarity with our prisoners because they are at the heart of our resistance of the illegal occupation. To learn more about Palestinian prisoners, please visit samidun.org. Today's special topic is the myth of greening the desert. When the Zionist movement set its sights on Palestine for the future site of its exclusionary ethnostate, one of the main strategies used to discount and undermine the indigenous Palestinians was to describe it as a land without people, an, in, an uninhabitable, underutilized, and barren land that would be, quote, brought to life by the future state. This strategy is, of course, a common through line in the narrative of European and European-backed imperialism, a strategy that dehumanizes or completely negates the indigenous population and describes their natural, harmonious, and thriving relationship with the land as barbaic or archaic or non-existent. Several accounts can be found that document this rhetoric. A land without people. This phrase first appeared in the description of Palestine as early as 1844 by the Christian restorationist Alexander Keith in the Scottish Free Church magazine. From there, the term only grew in its insidious and erasing nature. It was taken up by Anthony Ashley Cooper, an Earl of Shaftesbury, a British social reformer and politician, and also president of the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. In 1851, Cooper wrote to the Prime Minister of England that Palestine, then part of Greater Syria, was a country without a nation in need of a nation without a country. He wrote in his diary that Palestine and Greater Syria is, quote, wasted, without an inhabitant. These vast and fertile regions will soon be without a ruler, Without a known and acknowledged power to claim dominion, the territory must be assigned to someone or the other. There is a country without a nation, and God now, in his wisdom and mercy, directs us to a nation without a country. This colonialist rhetoric led to the Ordinance of Jerusalem of 1864 and 1865. A British survey led by a 28-year-old in the Royal Corps of Engineers and his team of six that mapped Jerusalem and its surrounds and boldly declared itself as the basis for all future research, despite its, incom its incompetent inability to locate water sources. The survey led to the unfortunate formation of the Palestine Exploration Fund, which received immense British funding and described itself as the premier surveying body of Palestine and the Levant, documenting the ethnography and geography of the region and producing military intelligence for research and for further expeditions. In 1875, the annual meeting of the Palestine Exploration Fund then Ashley Cooper forcefully told the members present that, quote, we have there a land teeming with fertility and rich in history, but almost without an inhabitant, a country without a people, and look, scattered all over the world, a people without a country. Up to this point, the usage of the phrase was in the pre-Zionist, pre-occupation state era, and it was for the intent of British imperialism. It was only when American 
Christian Zionists took up the slogan that we see it gain real traction to go from a theoretical proposition to a concrete political goal. Following a trip to Palestine in 1881, William E. Blackstone, a USA evangelist, began organizing support for the formation of a state in Palestine, culminating with the Blackstone Memorial, a memorandum of support for the turning of Palestine into another state, signed by hundreds of financially and politically powerful USA citizens and presented to President Benjamin Harrison. It can be said that the usage of this term by USA Christian Zionists was with the dual of intention of falsely identifying an underutilized land while also making the claim that Palestinians were not a people with a nation in the way that other people are, namely Europeans, and that Palestinians were instead a hodgepodge mix of Arabs, Greeks, and Armenians. However, enter the militarized Zionist era, and we see a much more racist and intentional pointed use of this phrase. At the turn of the century, Israel Zangwell was one of the foremost proponents of politicized or political Zionism. During a 1901 debate, he stated that, quote, Palestine has but a small population of Arabs and Fallahin and wandering lawless blackmailing Bedouin tribes. He continues, Restore the country without a people to the people without a country. Hear, hear, for we have something to give as well as to get. We can sweep away the blackmailer, be he Pasha or Bedouin. We can make the wilderness blossom as the rose and build up in the heart of the world a civilization that may be a mediator and interpreter between the East and the West. In 1902, he wrote that Palestine, quote, remains at this moment an almost uninhabited, forsaken, and ruined Turkish territory. After just a few years, and entirely too late, Zangwell came to regret his stances and split with the political Zionism that was at the helm of Theodore Herzl. At that time, he began to be a voice for cultural Zionism and expressed that he had, quote, become fully aware of the Arab peril. Explaining to an audience in New York, he continued, Palestine proper has already its inhabitants. Jerusalem already twice as thickly populated as the United States. And he warned of the creation of, quote, a large alien population. At this point, he moved his support to the Uganda scheme, leading to a break with the mainstream political Zionist movement of Theodore Herzl. This was around 1905. It is important to note that at this time, British-controlled East Africa was also being eyed by the movement for the establishment of a Zionist state. In fact, the proposal for the Uganda scheme was presented by Herzl himself. He was the greatest supporter of the proposal, and it was rejected by the Russian contingent of the Zionist Congress in 1903. But back to Zangwell, because his rescinding of his statements, specifically the idea of a land without people, sheds light on the program of misinformation that was being used to garner support for the occupation state. In 1908, Zangwell pleaded to a London court that he had been naive at the time of his famous 1901 speech and had since, quote, realized what is the density of the Arab population, quote, 
end quote, which at the time was about twice that of the United States. And in 1913, he continued his campaign of attempting to restore justice and began to attack those who insisted on repeating the concept of Palestine was empty and derelict and spoke out against those who labeled him as a traitor for saying otherwise. However, Zangwill's concerns seemed to be practical and not ethical, since in 1921 he wrote, quote, If Lord Shaftesbury was literally inexact in describing Palestine as a country without people, he was essentially correct, for there is no Arab people living in intimate fusion with the country, utilizing its resources and stamping it with a characteristic impress. There is at best an Arab encampment, the breakup of which would throw upon the Jews the actual manual labor of regeneration and prevent them from exploiting the Fallahin, whose numbers and lower wages are moreover a considerable obstacle to the proposed immigration from Poland and other centers. So here, he is still supporting the claim of a barren land needing regeneration, while also acknowledging that in forming the occupation state in Palestine, the indigenous farmers, the Fallahin, would make it difficult to import Europeans. In the post-1948 occupation state era, several myths and lies and the furthering of the phrase can be observed. Also, we see it switch to focus on making the desert bloom. For instance, Levi Eshkol, former Israeli prime minister during the 67 war, stated, it was only after the Zionists made the desert bloom that they, the Palestinians, became interested in taking it from us. By the 1970s, the occupation was complete in its vision. The expansion of the occupation state reached its near final form, and as such, the rhetoric pivoted to focus on the superiority of the occupation government and its citizens, highlighting its superior agricultural techniques and providing a narrative of conquest and success. Simon Perez, former Israeli Minister of Information, once said, quote, the country... Palestine, was mostly an empty desert with only a few islands of Arab settlement. And Israel's cultivable land today was indeed redeemed from swamp and wilderness. Up until today, this narrative has continued. Apartheid and occupation, apologists like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal run articles with titles like How to Make a Desert Bloom in 2015 or Progress, the art of making a desert bloom, or vanishing the desert. That one is from 2021. It seems that at this point in history, the occupation forces and its passive and active supporters recognize that the history they stand upon is patently untrue, and as such, they begin to toe the line of capitalism. So we've dealt with the myth. So let's talk about the truth. Climatologists from around the world describe the northern half of Palestine as a Mediterranean climate, meaning arid summers and abundant rainfall in the winter. The southern half of Palestine, Al-Naqab, is indeed a natural desert, which by all traditional indigenous cultivation methods has been considered unfit for agricultural cultivation for time immemorial. Most of the accounts from the period of time prior to the British mandate come from European exploration, and conflict with the stories and actuality of the Palestinian people and their land. 
Under the Ottoman control, Palestinian farmers were heavily taxed, with intricate systems of collection and administration developed to reap the benefit of the products produced via natural indigenous methods. The very density of Ottoman municipalities and the numerous land deeds that the Ottomans produced provide a strong rebuttal of the barren, underutilized land. In fact, if anything, it shows an immense interest by an empire in a fertile land that was being lived and worked by a people. The story of Palestinian agriculture and cultivation is told in our language and in our craft. All of our embroidery techniques feature plants, many of them that require cultivation. The very clothing we wore and still wear is dyed by plants that require knowledge and land to produce. Our songs are those celebrating planting, working the land, and harvest. It is important to realize that there exist other valid historical artifacts that are not simply those written and conform to the Western model of documentation. Historical artifacts by the people themselves. Still taking into consideration that from 1920 to 1948, the British considered themselves the authority on Palestine, it should surprise you to learn that official documentation puts the level of cultivation by Palestinians in the entire land mass controlled by Palestinians at 30%. And if you exclude the Negev, the desert we talked about, it's at over 44%. While this figure still underestimates the level of cultivation by including areas the Palestinians intentionally did not cultivate, areas like forests, sacred sites, and microclimates, it heavily refutes the false claim made by the occupation movement. Also, these figures do not include the land that was leased to peaceful immigrants at the time. Also, there are photos the very photos held by National Geographic that we continue to demand public and free access to. Aerial photography from the turn of the last century provides concrete evidence of our complex and sophisticated agrarian and urban Palestinian society throughout the land. Today, there are grassroots movements that are retelling the true history of our relationship to the land, reconnecting with its fertility and resisting the erasure of our techniques and knowledge. Umsleiman Farm is reviving our indigenous agricultural practice and showing how our farming is resistance. Located in Belin in the occupied West Bank, the farm was established in 2016 to connect Palestinians back to the produce they eat and to strengthen the fading indigenous agricultural identity. Belin is a village like many others that fell outside the 1967 armistice line but was still confiscated by the occupation government through the building of the separation wall. The wall denied farmers access to the lands that generations upon generations of their families had cultivated. However, due to unceasing protests and resistance and international attention brought to the city by a group of elders in 2007, the wall was pushed back and land that was owned and regained by a Palestinian family was donated to create the farm. At the farm, workers point out ancient groves that are evidence of self-sufficient farming methods that were honed over thousands of years. They explain that reviving these methods protects the land, reinforces the undeniable identity, and breaks the link of dependence on the occupation for food. 
Over 25% of Palestinians in the West Bank suffer from food insecurity. Also, they are forced to buy produce imported from the mainland occupation that is unfit for sale there. The founders of Umsleiman Farms serve as an example of how food sovereignty and self-sufficiency are characteristics of the Palestinian people because of their heritage and relationship of cultivation on the land. Due to the nearly full occupation of the West Bank, the farm is under constant threat of demolition as it falls in Area C, which carries a full restriction from Palestinian development and constitutes over two-thirds of the West Bank. But resistance is just as intrinsic to the Palestinian people as land cultivation. And Un Sleiman Farm declares, if they demolish it, you build something new. Masjar Jadur is another project that is attempting to reclaim and maintain indigenous Palestinian knowledge and agricultural techniques. In the countryside outside of Ramallah, called Dhahr al-Uqda, a piece of land was protected and acquired by Saleh Tota to establish what he describes as an arboretum and eco-park, a safe space for preservation and gathering in a sacred ecology ravaged by human maltreatment. At the time of acquisition, the land was already a beautiful landscape of olive trees, wild oaks, and hawthorns. Over years of dedication, he and other workers have nurtured a natural space in Palestine, a protected grounds where a collection of safeguarded indigenous plants and trees can be open to the public. Some of the important work that Jadur is doing includes reviving and documenting the diversity of native Palestinian plants in the Arboretum. Saleh often talks about the unfortunate monoculture and the narrow range of species that have come to be associated with our land. Him and his team have successfully brought back wild varieties of plants that few people realize were native to the region. The CSPP hopes to collaborate with Jadur on an exhibition that showcases the diversity of our plant life in the near future, a project we've been talking about for some time now. Existing amongst the constant sorrows and aggressions towards Palestinian in other regions is difficult for the people of Jadur. Additionally, Masjar Jadur is also a constant threat to demolition since it is in Area C. However, they persist, as all Palestinians do, and especially try to keep children in mind and the necessity for continuing and preserving identity and knowledge through them. They organize trips for Ramallah area schools, teach skills like gray water recycling and upcycling to make furniture and household items. They also organize summer camps and monthly Family Friday series where kids and parents engage with nature, an opportunity to reconnect the land outside of the occupation and in the heritage of their ancestors. These are just a couple of the land back, land forward initiatives that exist in Palestine today that are doing the work of resisting erasure and carrying truth and existence forward. Most importantly, they debunk the myth of greening the desert. Palestine was, is, and will always be as it must be, as the land owns itself and it will always give life to what is natural for it. Palestinians are evidence and stewards of this. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the Weekly Palestine.